might trickle in. Um, so I laid out some handouts for you guys. So if you didn't get one, I only printed out like 35. We should have enough. Um, but yeah, hopefully everyone got one. Uh, just a bit of introduction. My name is Matt Quintana. For those of you who don't know me, I've been coming to Harvest for about four years now. Um, I'm a student at Multnomah University in Portland, Oregon. I'm studying Bible and theology and biblical languages, and um, I'm in a program where I'm doing my master's as well. Um, I love teaching the Bible. I love talking about the Bible. It's a big passion of mine. Um, I meet with Pastor Gary each week, actually, and we, we talk theology and different things, and um, I'm hoping eventually to go into a career of ministry. And so we thought this would be a good way for me to get some practice teaching, and it's a topic that I find really interesting and I think is important for people to be aware of, and so hopefully we can uh, get me some practice, and also uh, you guys will learn something. So this is kind of my first time teaching something like this, so bear with me. Um, a couple more announcements. If I don't have your email, I sent out an email earlier this week. I'm going to pass around a sheet if you want to put your email down, because i um, I'll be sending out like an update and also sending out um, some files as well. I, I'm compiling some notes just of, of essentially what I'm going through each week. And at the end, we'll have all three weeks worth of notes. And I'll send those to you guys so you can print them out if you'd like or save just for referencing back. Um, we're recording this. And so if you want to listen again or if you, have, if you know someone who wasn't able to make it, um, we're going to be posting them on the Harvest website. Hopefully later this week we'll have session one posted. Or if you have to miss a week, that's a, be a, be a, be, that would be a good way to catch up. Um, uh, we don't have like a textbook or anything, but um, I do have this book by a guy, named, a guy named John Salehammer. He's a brilliant Old Testament scholar, uh, went to be with the Lord about a year ago, but wrote this book. Um, he has some super scholarly work, but wrote this book for the layperson. Um, any of you guys could understand this book. It's called How We Got the Bible by John Salehammer. It's a great introduction to this topic. It's $10 on Amazon, super cheap. It's 80 pages. You could read it in one sitting. It's super short. Um, great overview of all this stuff. He'll be touching on a lot of the same things and also uh, going into more details on some other things. Um, so other than that, that's pretty much the introduction. I want to give a little bit of an introduction to the course. Uh, okay, this clicker isn't going to work. Kai, can you go back there and move the, the mouse just over to the left screen? There we go. Thanks, Guy. Uh, so just as an introduction to the course, I want to talk about what questions are we asking. So first and foremost, we're going to be talking about how did we get the Bible? What was the process like in the formation of the Old Testament and the New Testament? Um, how, how do we have the Bibles that we have today? Do we have the right books in our Old and New Testament? What about the Apocrypha? Maybe that word is uh, new to you. We're going to be talking about that next week, but essentially the Apocrypha is a body of Jewish literature that some people believe should be in the Bible and some people don't. Um, and so are we gonna, we're going to talk about that. Is that something that we should have? Are we missing something? As Protestants, in our tradition, we don't usually um, have those in our Bible. So are we, are we missing out on anything? Um, so next, after so many years, can we trust that the Hebrew and Greek manuscripts we have are reliable? 
we're talking about this a little more, but the Bible was written in Hebrew and Greek, and so now we have translations. Are we able to trust those manuscripts? Can we um, rely on them? Were they damaged? Were they changed intentionally? And why are there so many different Bibles out there today? Do we need different translations? What makes a good translation, and is there a best translation? That's going to be stuff we're talking about in the third week. And lastly, can I depend on other human translations of the Bible? I'm guessing that most of you don't have the time to go learn Greek and Hebrew to be able to read um, the ancient manuscripts for yourself, so you're going to be relying on a translation done by a scholar. Can you trust that person? Um, Should you be worrying? Do you actually have the Word of God in your hands? Here's some of the goals that I have for this study. Again, to, to be able to answer these previous questions, to learn basic facts regarding the text and canon of the Bible. I'm going to be defining those terms in a moment, including the process of how the Old and New Testament came into being and the process of translation. To be able to defend attacks against the Bible in our current culture and society, we live in a culture where the Bible is being questioned all the time. There's lots of, um, I think, false information that's being spewed around about um, you can't trust the Bible. It was written by, was written by man, all, all these types of things. So we're going to be hope, hopefully able to answer some of those objections at the end of this course. To possess a heightened sense of wonder, gratitude, and worship toward God for his gracious act of revealing himself to us in his word. This is a big one. I want you guys to walk away, not just with knowledge, not just with information, but with a heightened sense of awe to God for the way he has revealed himself to to us in scripture. Um, Thankful that he has preserved the Bible for us and uh, just with a heart of worship. And again, to, to leave with great encouragement and a deepened faith that the Bible you hold in your hands is in fact the inspired word of God, and it is thus authoritative. It, it has authority in your life. Real quick, defining some terms. When I'm using the, the title text and canon, uh, it's kind of as a, another way of talking about the topic of how we got our Bible, I'm referring to the general topic in biblical studies having to do with the biblical languages, the formation of the Bible, the translation of the Bible, and the process of copying and preserving the Bible. The term canon refers to the list of books which are considered God's word and therefore authoritative for faith and conduct. So if a book is canonical, it's recognized as scripture. If it's non-canonical, we don't recognize it as scripture. And then the term text is simply referring to the text of scripture, the, the words, the paragraphs, uh, chapters making up the entire books. Um, so essentially the, the text itself. Um, and before we start, I want to pray after this introduction. Father, Thank you for the opportunity to teach on this subject. Lord, I'm passionate about it, and I believe it's important. Would the words I have to say be informative and encouraging for everyone here, for those listening? Lord, I thank you for this opportunity. Would you help me to speak clearly and eloquently, understandably? Father, would we leave this study with faith in our Bibles? Would we leave with a heightened sense of worship and thanksgiving? And um, would we be so confident that you have revealed yourself through the Bible to us today and we can read the Bible and hear the voice of God because it is, in fact, the Word of God. Thank you for your son. It's in his name we pray.
Amen. Uh, just a quick comment real quick. If anyone has questions at any point, if I say a term, you don't know what I, what I mean. If I uh, don't explain something clearly enough, just raise your hand and um, just pop up because I, I don't want don't to confuse anyone. And I, if, if you have a question that's related, um, go ahead and ask it. If there's something that's a little bit off topic, we can talk about it after class. But, um, but yeah, any questions, go for it. Um, so any questions just on the introduction and uh, what we're going to be talking about? All right, well, let's get into it. So to begin, I have a case study. You're spending some time reading your Bible at Starbucks. Two people join you at the table and you engage in conversation. Eventually, the discussion moves to the book you are reading and you tell them that it is the Bible. Respectfully, one of them states that she thinks you can't really know what the Bible originally said. The Bible you're using is based on copies that probably contained a lot of changes and errors. Until the invention of the printing press, every Bible was completely different. It's hopeless to imagine that we can know what it ever really said. Besides, there's a lot of different people edit that, there's a lot of different people edited uh, it to fit the kind of doctrine they preferred for themselves. Then the other person chimes in and he says, besides, how are you supposed to know that the books you have in your Bible are the right ones? Couldn't anyone have written something and called it scripture? How do you respond? So hopefully by the end of the night, we're going to be able to respond to this. Um, what I hope to do by the end of the night is to convince you that we have the right books in our Bible and that we can trust the text that we have, the words that we have in our Bible. So one thing you'll hear me mention a lot is the Hebrew Bible, emphasis on Hebrew. Um, essentially, it's just synonymous with the, the term Old Testament. They're interchangeable. However, I, I really prefer the term Hebrew Bible because I think when, when we have old and new, it, it diminishes the value of, of it because it's old. It's older. So something newer is better when we think about things old versus new, new would be better. Um, and, and that's just not the case, and I don't think that's ever the, the way it was intended. So uh, when I say Hebrew Bible, you can hear Old Testament. Um, the reason I'm calling it the Hebrew Bible is because, as we'll see in a moment, that is the language that the, the Old Testament was written in, was uh, Hebrew. The Hebrew Bible consists of 24 books, which are equivalent to the 39 books we have in our Old Testaments. So um, that may seem really crazy. The Hebrew Bible only has 24 books, but I'll show you, I promise, uh, it's exactly the same. We number them kind of differently, and so I'll explain how that all works out. And again, um, oh, so the Hebrew Bible in, in your Bibles, if you don't have a study Bible, if you just have text, it takes about, uh, up about three quarters of your Bible. So it's a good chunk. So it's important, to obviously, to know it. And then lastly, uh, as I mentioned, the reason it's called the Hebrew Bible is because of the language it was written in, ancient Hebrew. So here's the Hebrew language. Originally, it was written in, in this older script, but this is what the alphabet looks like. I actually included it at the end of your, uh, the end of your packets because I thought we would all learn the alphabet together. There's going to be a quiz on it next week. Um, just kidding. So uh, one thing about Hebrew is it reads from right to left. So we start, start up there with that letter that looks kind of like an X. And um, those ones that are in parentheses, those are called final form. And so when a letter is at the end of a word, it's going to take that final form. Um, but I'll, I'll just go through them. And you guys repeat after me. I'll do one at a time. Aleph. 
Beit, Gimel, Dalit, Hey, Vav, Zion. You got to get. You really got to clear. This is this is what we call a dirty H. It's a hate, hate. So it's yeah. It's a fun one. Tate, Yod, Kaf, Lamed, Mame, Noon, Samek, Ayin, Pei, Sade, Kof, Resh, Sin, Tav. All right, you learned the Hebrew Hebrew alphabet. There you go. Um, so. Like I mentioned, it was originally written in this different looking script. And so on the next slide right here, here's some super old um, artifacts that we have. And uh, the, the text looks different. It's not in that, uh, the script that I just showed you. This is the old script. But uh, Hebrew as a language is over 4,000 years old. It's super old. And so here's uh, a inscription, an inscription from the 8th century B.C., and then there's another calendar there on the right from 950 BC. So super old. Hebrew's been around for a very, very long time. This is actually at my school. We have, uh, we, we have the, the awesome privilege of having a Torah scroll, so a scroll of the entire um, Hebrew Bible, and it was donate, donated to us. This is a picture. Obviously, you can't see it super well, but um, this is starting in Genesis 1. It's from the 18th and 19th century. It's fantastic. Those of us in the Hebrew program get to, to use it and um, read from it. It's, it's a beautiful, beautiful artifact that we have. Yes, that, uh, you, it looks like a bold letter up in the top right. It starts, Bereshit bara Elohim et hashamayim ve'et ha'aretz. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So the Hebrew language, uh, a challenge that we have with Hebrew is many of the letters, I don't know if you guys noticed, looked a lot, of, looked a lot alike. And so here's some letters, and they look very similar. It was challenging to learn these at first because... Um, sometimes the only difference is, is just the tiniest stroke of a pen. And so this can be challenging when we're reading manuscripts. If you think of the challenge it is to read some people's handwriting in English. So if you can imagine a scribe, if they don't make uh, something distinct enough, it can be hard to read it. But uh, we can figure it out. I just thought I'd show you guys that. Uh, originally, the Hebrew language was written without vowels. This is crazy. The alphabet we just recited, it was just consonants. And so here's some Hebrew text. There's no vowels. It's just consonants. And um, it sounds really crazy, but if you know the language, if you know um, the, the, there are vowels as you speak it, but not written. So if you know the language, you can, you can read it pretty well. Um, so I happen to know this is from Genesis 1. I had to memorize this passage in my first semester of Hebrew, and so I can read it. Bereshit bara Elohim et hashamayim ve'et ha'aretz. The ha'aretz hayata tohu vavohu v'choshek al pnei tohom. But you have to have a fairly good grasp of what you're saying, and so most Jews would memorize large portions of Scripture because they, they had to or else they might be saying it wrong. Um, it sounds crazy, but try this example for English. Most of you can probably figure out what this says. Does anyone, does anyone think they, they got it? Uh, 
There you go. This sentence was written without any vowels, but most of you can still figure out what it says. So um, it's not too difficult. It does get complicated a little when you have words like, uh, so you have just a T there. It could be at or it could be it. Um, really, you're going to have to know based on context and logic and familiarity with the language. But this is kind of what you're dealing with with Hebrew. Um, if there's a word that sounds the same but it's spelled differently, you might have a bit of a problem. But um, it, it forces you to really be familiar with the language. I did not. Just the new Hebrew. Yeah. Uh, yes, it, we'll, we'll get to that. Um, actually, right now. Great segue, Frank. Thank you. Um, eventually, a group of Jewish scribes, they're called the Masoretes, they came around and they added vowels into the text. The reason they did this is because they wanted to, to really to give a, um, they, they wanted to, to uh, have a concrete text because when you don't have vowels, you can read it differently and it might mean different things. So they created a text that had vowels, was pronounced the same way and you're going to, it was going to mean the same thing all the time. Um, it's, but they, they have this very high view of scripture where they don't want to add anything. They are not going to write any extra letters in or add even a single word because that, they believe that would be sin. They believe that would be, be really, really bad. And so they won't do that. So how are you going to add vowels? Well, they add a bunch of dots and dashes below and above and inside the words to create a system of vowels. Again, this was to preserve the oral tradition that had been passed down to them. And so when they added the vowels, they weren't, they weren't uh, creating the only way to read the text. They were, they were really finalizing the way they had learned to read the text. And so it's right most of the time, but they might have had a different tradition in some spots. Um, but it ends up being really helpful. And so... Here is what Hebrew looks like with vowels. You can see all those dots and dashes, um, and they're going to represent different vowels and sounds. Um, you're kind of reading, you're, you're kind of going down, reading the first, reading the vowel at the bottom, then up, trying to catch a vowel. And um, it's, it's, it's weird. It's complicated because they didn't add any letters in between. Um, but it does, again, end up being helpful because you know how to pronounce the words. So here's the, the English example you can see with vowels now. Um, it's quite a bit different. <laughs> I did want to mention uh, the language of Aramaic. So the language of Aramaic um, is a cousin language to Hebrew. It's uh, a good way to think about it is like Spanish and Portuguese. If you are fluent in Spanish and you go over to Portugal, you, you're probably going to understand a lot of the words. There's going to be a lot of crossover words. You might be able to read some things and engage in conversation a little bit, but you're not going to be fluent. And so it's kind of the same way with Hebrew. Um, and there's a couple portions of Scripture that are written in Hebrew, about half of Daniel, half of Ezra, and a couple other verses. Um, again, it's very similar, but it's just an interesting fact. Here is a manuscript from the Dead Sea Scrolls, which we'll talk about in a little bit, and it's of the book of Daniel, and so that space that the arrow is pointing to, above it is Hebrew, and below it is Aramaic, so you can see where they switched. Um, and the reason this happened was, uh, there, there might be some theological reasons, 
um, in the book of Daniel, there's kind of a, a structure of the way the book goes, and it starts with Hebrew, then the middle section of Aramaic, and then Hebrew, and there's this kind of theological structure um, to the book. And then also with the book of Ezra, um, much of the Aramaic is when they're quoting a letter from King Cyrus who was, um, when they were in Babylonian captivity, the the language of Babylon was Aramaic, and so they're quoting that, and so that's why it would be in Aramaic. Um, But just, it's interesting, so most people say, oh, the Bible was written in Hebrew and Greek. 99% 99% of the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, but you do have a little bit of Aramaic. So if you want to... Yes, that would have been, um, have been one of the main languages they're speaking during the time of Christ. That and Greek at that time had become the, the main language. So Jesus was probably at least trilingual. He would have learned, um, learned Aramaic as probably his first language, then Greek and Hebrew to be able to read um, the Torah. So Jesus was a smart dude, to say the least. To say the least. Um, so the autographs. This is a term that I'm going to be using. Autographs are the very first writings of any biblical text, the original text produced by the author. So when when Moses wrote the very first copy of Genesis, the very first one, wasn't even a copy because it was um, the original. It's called the autograph. Uh, this isn't to be confused with manuscripts. A manuscript is a handmade copy of an existing text, though it's often used currently to refer to any copy. So technically, the harvest kind of statement of belief is a little wrong because it affirms inerrancy in the original manuscripts. It would be the original autograph. So Greg or Gary, you might want to get on that. Um, as long as it's in there, that's true. Uh, unfortunately, we have about we, we have close to no information about the autographs, the very originals. We don't have any. These would be thousands of years old. We don't have any of the original surviving autographs, either of the, the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, or the New Testament. This might sound like a problem, but instead we have hundreds of copies of manuscripts, and I'm going to explain why that's not a problem. So, like I said, we don't have the autographs, but we do have some helpful information that helps us to answer some of these questions about the books of the Old Testament and the text. Uh, One of the the aspects of this is the arrangement of books in the Hebrew Bible, the earliest arrangement. You're going to hear me use this term a lot interchangeably with the Hebrew Bible, the Tanakh. You might have heard this before. Um, It's an acronym that gets its name from the three individual sections of the Hebrew Bible. The first section is the Torah, which in Hebrew means instruction. The second section is Nevi'im, which means prophets. And then the third section is Ketuvim, which means writings. And so I color-coded it like that. Um, So there's these three main chunks of the Hebrew Bible and forms the, the Tanakh, the instruction, the prophets, and the writings. Um, this, is, uh, this is really important. I'm going to be using this term a lot, and we're going to see it come into play. So does everyone kind of understand what I'm, what I'm saying when I, when I say Tanakh? And so I'm going to show you on the next, um, next slide how that breaks up. I mentioned earlier that rather than 39 books in the, the Hebrew Bible, there's 24 the contents are exactly the same, so I'll show you right now. Um, the Tanakh is the earliest known 
ordering of the books of the Hebrew Bible. And so in modern editions of the Hebrew Bible, the Hebrew Bible that I read at school, this is the way it's laid out. So that first section we have is the Torah. It's the instruction. It follows the exact same order that our first five books do, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And then we have the Nevi'im, the prophets. And this is kind of broken up into two sections, the former prophets and the latter prophets. We go Joshua, Judges, we're the same. And then does anyone know what the next book of the Bible would be in English? Ruth. There's no Ruth. Where's Ruth? Ruth is in the last section, we'll see. Um, instead, it goes Samuel. And maybe you're wondering, well, what happened to First and Second Samuel? One of the reasons the numbering is, is different is because in Hebrew, Samuel is one book. There's no first and second Samuel. It's just Samuel. Um, the reason for this originally was because, like I mentioned, Hebrew, you're writing without consonants, so the words are a lot smaller. Um, writing will take up less space, and so you can fit the entire book on one scroll. Well, when it was translated to Greek, they add vowels, and so now it gets bigger and they have to split it up. Uh, but I think this should be a hint for us when we read the books, uh, the book of Samuel, we shouldn't just think First Samuel is its own and then Second Samuel is just separate. They're actually originally one book. The same is true with the book of Kings. And then we have Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and then the book of the Twelve. What we have as the minor prophets, they have as one book. They had it all on one scroll. It was the book of the Twelve. And that, again, another, um, another thing, we probably shouldn't see each minor prophet as isolated individual they had them all as one book, and so if you look at them, this is a bit of another class, but I would, I would, there's, there's so many connections between the minor prophets that are um, really mind-blowing to see how they, they function together uh, as one book. And then lastly, the Ketuvim, the writings. This was a bit of a, of a junk drawer category almost, all the ones that didn't fit. Um, but you have Psalms, Job, Proverbs, Ruth, Song of Songs, Ecclesiastes, Lamentations, Esther, Daniel, Ezra, Nehemiah, originally one book, and Chronicles, originally one book. And so that's how you get the, the 24 from 39 is you combine the 12 combined Samuel, combined Kings, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Chronicles, and you get down to 24. Uh, so this is the order that the Hebrew Bible was, was composed in. Um, after the Babylonian exile is when it really started to take its shape, and all the books had been written, and the Hebrew Bible was put together, and I believe it was put in its shape for a reason. Um, when I read the Old Testament, this is the order I read it in, because not only was this the original order, but I think there's a lot of uh, theological uh, incentive to read the books in this order. There's a lot of building off of each other. When you, when you go through it in this order, you're going to catch themes and things. Um, it's a, another class I would love to teach. Um, but for instance, if you look at, uh, at the end of Deuteronomy and the beginning of Joshua, they're very similar. And um, it's what we call a seam in the Tanakh because that's where this new section starts and yet they were con they're kind of connected. And same with the beginning of Psalms. If you read Psalm 1 and then read Malachi chapters 3 and 4, there's a lot of overlap. Um, and also if you read Joshua 1 and Psalm 1, there seems to be some connection as well. Chronicles, a lot of times it gets passed over because for us, we read it right after Kings and we think, oh, it's just a recap of what I read in Kings. I'm behind on my Bible reading. I'll just skim through Chronicles. Um, but really, 
Chronicles is, is told from a different perspective. It's, it's told in a, in a very future-oriented perspective. It's looking forward as the, the, kind of the, the end of the Hebrew Bible is looking forward to a king, to a Messiah who will come and save the people. So in that sense, it's really pointing towards Christ, and it ser- serves as kind of the capstone of the entire Hebrew Bible, and we miss that when we kind of read it in the middle there or we don't read it at all. Uh, so any questions on the original kind of ordering there and how that all works out? Yeah, Frank? That's the last book of our, Hebrew, uh, of our Old Testament. Uh, so, so yeah, this is the, the earliest known ordering, and we'll actually see that this appears to be the ordering that Jesus himself was using, and the ordering that the New Testament writers were using, and the ordering that all other sorts of people were using. The reason it kind of got switched is because um, the, the church begins, and now Gentiles are included, and you have a lot of Gentiles who aren't informed on these, um, on these things, and they don't know about the, the fact that, oh, it was originally in this order. Um, and so Gentiles messing everything up, they, they just, they, they think that, oh, we'll just, we'll just order these chronologically might be the best way. And there's kind of been this obsession with chronology ever since in the church. And so they, they ordered the first five books, chronological order, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, the events of Ruth take place during the period of the Judges. And so they'll like, they're like, we'll put that after Judges. And then, um, they, they kind of follow along after that. Uh, and they, they also group them a little bit by genre, so the, the type of literature it is. But, um, but I think we messed it up. I think that, that this was the way to go. And we'll, we'll see um, why this is the case. We'll look at a lot of other uh, witnesses to this. Just a side note, I did want to mention, I didn't know exactly where to put this, but uh, this is an important little, little note. Um, Maybe you've been reading along in your Old Testament before, and you've come to a book that was mentioned. Maybe you're reading First Kings, and you read of, um, or you're reading Samuel, and you read, read of the book of Jashar. And you check your table of contents, and you're like, this isn't in my Bible. What the heck? What's the book of Jashar? Um, there's a lot of books that are mentioned in the Old Testament that are not canonical. So if we think back to what that word means, it... it, it should not be considered scripture. It was never considered scripture by anyone. Um, these were just other books that were around at the time, but I, I think one of the, uh, something that speaks to that is we don't have any copies of them. So they didn't even take care to preserve them because they didn't think they were scripture. This was just a book that existed at that time. Um, so here's some examples. But um, Any questions there? Okay. Moving on to kind of some evidence for the Tanakh and this ordering of the Hebrew Bible that I uh, presented. Here's a quote from the Dead Sea Scrolls, which we'll talk about next. It mentions the books of Moses, the Book of Moses, the Torah, the words of the prophets, the Nevi'im, and of David, the Ketuvim. Um, David obviously wrote a bunch of psalms. He's recognized as one of the major authors of the book of Psalms. And so uh, they're ki- the, the, the book of Psalms is the biggest book in that last section of the Hebrew Bible. And so it kind of came to stand for the entire section rather than saying, oh, the writings. They just say the psalms and referring to the whole third section there. 
Um, as I mentioned earlier, I would, I would argue that the Hebrew Bible itself shows this structure if we read it in this way. And then uh, as we continue to explore the formation here of the Hebrew Bible, we'll see that this, um, this really is, is testified to by a bunch of different people. Um, but right now, I think we'll take about a five or ten minute break and then come back. One thing I did want to share with you guys is uh, I have a professor at Multnomah who let me borrow some artifacts. And so I have uh, a a Hebrew scroll that was, uh, began to be written on um, a piece of parchment. They didn't finish writing on it. I believe they messed up. And so they kind of scrapped the whole thing and sold it. Um, But you can check that out. Uh, I have some papyrus. This is what, uh, it's essentially paper. It's just reeds smashed together, and a lot of manuscripts would be written on this, especially for the New Testament. I've got a little little reed pen and uh, an ink jar. Um, I have a modern Hebrew Bible, if any of you guys want to check out what that looks like. And then also, this we'll be talking about later. This is a, a photocopy of the earliest complete manuscript we have of the Hebrew Bible. There's pictures of all of it. You can come look at those. There's actually some beautiful artwork that the scribes did as well. Um, so yeah, feel free to come up and take a look at those. Go to the bathroom, take a drink of water, and we'll probably be back in about five or ten minutes at, at about 7.30. All right. All right, I am recording this after the fact. Um, Unfortunately, during the second part of the class, uh, we thought we were recording, (laughs) but we weren't. Um, So I'm going to go back and redo this just for you people online, people who might be listening, um, and so I can go back and listen to myself. Um, It's unfortunate it didn't didn't work the first time, but... um, but we will make do. So let me get my PowerPoint up so I can go through my notes. Um, I'll try and be just as passionate and just as lively as I was. Um, And so here we go. So we're going to be starting off with, uh, picking back up rather, with earliest manuscripts of the Hebrew Bible. And so um, when, again, when we're talking about manuscripts, we're talking about copies of the original autographs that have been passed down, and we're going to be looking at starting with the oldest ones that we have today. And so the oldest manuscripts that we have today are from the Dead Sea Scrolls. So beginning in 1946, there was a major discovery in some caves along the Dead Sea in modern-day Israel um, to the west of the Dead Sea. And it's kind of funny the way they were found. There was a shepherd boy who lost his goat and was checking some of the caves. Um, I believe I heard a story that he was kind of throwing rocks into caves to, to scare out the goat and heard it hit something and went in. And lo and behold, uh, there's a bunch of manuscripts in these clay jars and uh, crazy discovery. And it turns out that there was a dozen caves around this location called Qumran in Israel and there were hundreds of manuscripts. Uh, 
So as they looked back into the history of it, there used to be a group of Jews called the Essenes who lived at Qumran there from about 500 BC to 68 AD. Uh, they, as my professor said, they were a radical right-wing cult with a massive library. So they're kind of this cultish offshoot of Judaism, and um, they had a huge library and uh, collection of manuscripts that they had at this location. They were stored in caves. Um, here on the next screen, which you guys can't see, I had a picture of some of the caves, and um, I told a story. I actually had the opportunity to go to Israel last year about the same time as I'm teaching this class right now, and I visited Qumran, visited um, the location where some of these caves were, and it was, it was surreal to be there, um, to be where they had found all these, place, uh, all these caves and, um, and just see some of these stuff because it, it was really fascinating. Um, in the caves here at Qumran, they found copies of every single book of the Hebrew Bible except Esther. Um, I don't know why Esther wasn't there. Some people think it was because some Jews didn't like that it, it doesn't say the name God in the book. Now, if you read the book, God is very much involved behind the scenes, orchestrating everything and, and working things out for the good of his people. Um, but the name God is not mentioned, and so some people didn't like that. That may be a reason it's not there. Another reason might have been that it deteriorated or um, they didn't find it. Um, we don't know. But every other book was found. So now we have thousands of fragments from 225 biblical manuscripts. We have um, a bunch of manuscripts from the Psalms, Deuteronomy, Isaiah, Genesis, Exodus. Um, all those had, had more than a dozen, two dozen manuscripts. And then all the other books of the Hebrew Bible, we have m at least one, more than that in, in most cases. Along with these biblical manuscripts, there were 670 manuscripts of non-canonical works. And so non-canonical, um, that's to say they, they are not scripture, they were not, um, they were not considered biblical. Instead, they were just popular Jewish works written at the time. Uh, some, of, some of those include community guidelines and biblical commentaries, etc. There were also a few manuscripts written in Paleo-Hebrew, that's the old Hebrew script which I mentioned, um, would be super, super old from prior to the Babylonian captivity. Um, these manuscripts range from 500 AD to around the time of Christ. The bottom line with these, why they're super important, is because uh, you, I would argue actually they're one of the most important archeological finds of all time. Prior to the Dead Sea Scrolls, the oldest complete manuscript we had of the Hebrew Bible was from 1000 AD. The Dead Sea Scrolls brought manuscripts over a thousand years older than this. This is so crazy because now we go back another thousand years and we get to look at these manuscripts and see, do these line up with the ones we were using? Do these line up with the manuscripts we have today? And the overwhelming consensus is yes, they do. Um, obviously, you guys can't see the screen, but I have now pulled up a picture of what is called the Great Isaiah Scroll from 125 BC, and it's a complete scroll of the book of Isaiah, which is a rather large book, 66 chapters, uh, and, and the entire thing is intact. It's in mint condition, and when we compare that with the text that we have today from a thousand years later, which I will be talking about soon, it's almost identical. 
there's very few differences, and the, the differences are really only in spelling and a word here or there. And uh, this gives us such confidence in the text of Scripture, the words itself, that we can look at a book like Isaiah, a huge book, and it's kept the same form over a thousand years. This is uh, insane, and this is a huge find. Another really important manuscript we have is the Samaritan Pentateuch. Uh, So just a a crash course real quick on the Samaritans. During the first exile, um, the Assyrian captivity, some Jews were scattered and then intermarried with non-Jews and created this race of people, the Samaritans. They were looked down on really um, by, by a lot of people, but specifically by the Jews because they were this half-blood, this half-Jew, half-non-Jew mix. And so you read in the New Testament um, the interactions that Jesus has with Samaritans, and a lot of the Pharisees are, are blown away because for Jesus to, um, to interact with them is, um, is crazy for, for a Jew to interact with a Samaritan. We have the parable of the Good Samaritan that is uh, completely countercultural for a Samaritan to help a Jew. Um, and so anyway, these people, they kind of started their own cult um, within Judaism or, or sect within Judaism, and they didn't believe that the entire Hebrew Bible was God's word. They only believed the first five books were God's word. And so the first five books, the Torah or the Pentateuch, Penta meaning five, um, they, they thought that these books were scripture but nothing else. And so they kept their own copies of these books. This is super important for us today because we can look at it and we can see how it matches the, the wording of the first five books of the Bible in the manuscripts we have. Obviously, this shows that these five books should be considered scripture, but it also shows us um, the, way, the, the ways in which these manuscripts differ, but more significantly, the ways in which they're the same. So it's another textual witness to the Hebrew Bible. Moving on to early translations of the Hebrew Bible. So moving into another language, we have the Septuagint. This is a very early and very important translation of the Hebrew Bible into the Greek language. It was done about um, 250 to 150 B.C. in Alexandria, Egypt. Uh, So 150 years before the time of Christ is the time it was finished. And again, it's taking the Hebrew Bible into Greek, the common language of that time period. You will often see the Septuagint referred to as the LXX, the Roman numerals for 70, because tradition has it that it was 70 Jewish scholars who worked on the translation. We also have some very early manuscripts of the Septuagint. We have one from the second century, so around the time when it was being translated. Um, Another one from 100 BC, so uh, just a short period of time after it had been finalized. We have some manuscripts from the Dead Sea Scrolls. Uh, We have a uh, a lot of little manuscripts and uh, different pieces uh, of parchment with the LXX written on it. But the earliest complete manuscript of the Hebrew Bible in Greek is from the 4th century A.D. Uh, This would be referred to as Codex Alexandrinus, Codex Vaticanus, and Codex Sinaiticus. Um, A codex is simply a book, just a fancy word for uh, for a book. They had, uh, until this time, 
written on scrolls and then they figured out, oh, hey, if we fold uh, a piece of paper in half and you know, bind it together, we can write on both sides and create a codex. Um, so that's what they did. Uh, Christians kind of made this popular with their copies of the Bible and so we have copies of the Septuagint from the fourth century. Another early translation of the Hebrew Bible is into Aramaic. That is the, the cousin language of Hebrew, which I mentioned earlier in the presentation. So after the Babylon, Babylonian exile, the, the language of Aramaic really replaced Hebrew as um, the, the modern language. And so they needed to translate the Hebrew Bible into language for the common person. And so we have translations of the Hebrew Bible into Aramaic from around the time of Christ. They were completed around 100 AD. I also wanted to mention three other major Jewish translations. The reason that these translations came about was really in a response to the Christian church. The Christian church um, had been using the Greek Bible, so the New Testament, and then they were also using the Septuagint, the translation of the Old Testament into Greek. Greek was the modern language, and uh, you now had Gentiles who didn't know Hebrew, but they, they knew Greek, and so they were using the, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. Well, as Christians and Jews were debating each other about the Messiah and whether or not he was predicted in the Old Testament, the Jews found that Christians were, were kind of succeeding as they were referring to the Septuagint. And so they launched a kind of counterattack and wanted to translate their own Bible so they could say, here's a Jewish translation um, and make sure this doesn't point to Jesus in any way. So we have a guy by the name of Aquila who had a translation done about 120 AD, a scholar by the name of Symmachus, the translation done about 170 to 200 AD, and then Theodotion, um, who translated the, the Bible into Greek around the first and second century AD. These, again, are more witnesses to the text of the Old Testament. We can look at these translations and go back and see how does this compare with the Hebrew Bible. Obviously, it's in a different language now, but we can see were they translating from this same text? Were they translating from these same words here um, or not? And we can see places where there's remarkable similarity and then some places where there's some minor differences. So now I'm going to be talking about the New Testament witness to the Hebrew Bible. This is really important as we look at the New Testament. It is just saturated in the language of the Hebrew Bible and the um, stories of the Hebrew Bible. Uh, it's debated the exact number of direct quotations from the Hebrew Bible in the New Testament, but a, a, a safe estimate is at least 350. And then there's thousands of allusions, uh, an allusion being uh, a direct reference or uh, or mention of a story or name or verse in the Hebrew Bible that's not directly quoting. So think about the book of Revelation. There's not always direct quotes, but there's definitely a bunch of uh, allusions to the Hebrew Bible, uh, like Ezekiel and Isaiah and the other prophets are alluded to heavily in a, uh, Revelation. And so this shows that the Hebrew Bible had a major influence on the New Testament. And by looking at the New Testament, we can see which books 
were being considered canonical or considered scriptural by Jesus and the New Testament authors, and we can also see what verses, the, the text that they believed was correct. Um, so a safe estimate for the amount of um, the New Testament that is based on either quotations or allusions is 30%. 30% of the entire New Testament is, is either directly quoting to or alluding, and, and that's probably a safe bet. It could be much more. The New Testament often refers to the scriptures in the plural, which seems to indicate that there is some kind of collection. Matthew 5, 15 through 18, Luke 24, 25, and later on in the chapter, and then 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 8, all imply some kind of definite boundaries or canon of scripture. So here we have two very important passages to the witness of the Hebrew Bible in the New Testament. Luke 24, 44, this is Jesus speaking to the, to the disciples on the road to Emmaus. He says, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. So you can't see, but I've been color coding the three sections of the Tanakh that I mentioned in the first section of this presentation, the Torah, the Nevi'im, the Ketuvim, so the instruction, the prophets, and the writings. And here, Jesus mentions the law of Moses, so corresponding with the Torah, the prophets, corresponding with the Nevi'im, and the Psalms, which corresponds with the third section, the Ketuvim, the writings. Um, Often, the first word of a book came to stand for the whole. So in the Hebrew Bible, they don't have a book of Genesis. They have the book of Bereshit, which is the first word of the book of Genesis. That's how they refer to it. And so in the third section of the Tanakh, um, to stand for the whole, they just call it the Psalms. Um, David was one of the main authors of the book of Psalms, and so sometimes you'll see it re- uh, referred to as David. Um, the Psalms is the biggest book in the third section of the Tanakh, and so as the first and biggest book, it kind of stands for the whole. So here Jesus mentions the, the law of Moses, the prophets, the Psalms. This is huge because it shows us this was the Bible he was using. He was using the Tanakh by referring to these three sections. He's showing which books he's using and the order in which he was using them. Another big verse we have, again, in the book of Luke. Also, you can see Matthew 23, 35, where there's a similar verse. Luke eleven fifty 50 through 51, Jesus says, This generation will be responsible for the blood of all the prophets that has been shed, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah. Now, you might be wondering, what does this have to do with um, the, the witness to the Hebrew Bible? Well, here Jesus is, is mentioning in, in one statement the blood of all the people that has been shed in the, in the Hebrew Bible. He mentions Abel, who, if we were looking at this chronologically, would be the very first person who was killed in the Bible in Genesis 4.8. However, if we continue looking chronologically, the last person killed chronologically in the Hebrew Bible is a guy by the name of Uriah, not Uriah, Bathsheba's wife, another Uriah under Jehoiakim in Jeremiah 26, verses 20 through 23. 
his death is mentioned. So if Jesus is referencing uh, a chronology from first to last, he's not right here. However, if Jesus is going canonically, that is in uh, in the the uh, w- within the realms of, of the canon, from the first book to the last book, if he's looking within the bounds of the canon of the Old Testament, Abel is the first person who dies in Genesis 4.8, and Zechariah under Joash in 2 Chronicles 24.20 is the last person to die. And so here we have a person who died very early in the first book of the first section of the Hebrew Bible, then a person who dies at the end of the last book of the last section of the Hebrew Bible. So it appears that Jesus here is referencing from A to Z, from Abel to Zechariah. He's going canonically from the first death in the first book of the Hebrew Bible to the last death in the last book of the Hebrew Bible. And so this shows us that, again, Jesus is using the Tanakh. He's using this three-part structure for the Hebrew Bible. And this shows us that he is using these same books in his Hebrew Bible. There's also several places in the New Testament where quotations are drawn from each section of the Tanakh. So in John chapter 19, it says, these things happened so that the scripture would be fulfilled. And then there's a quote from Exodus 9.12 and Numbers 12.46 from the first section of the Tanakh, the Torah. Then there's a quote from Zechariah 12.10, the second section of the Torah. Then there, uh, sorry, uh, the second section of the Tanakh, the Nevi'im. Then there's a quote from Psalm 34.20 from the last section of the Tanakh, the Ketuvim. So here they mention scripture, then they quote from all three parts of the Hebrew Bible, showing us the, the bounds within which they're working, and then also which books they are considering scripture. We see this same thing again in Romans 10.18, where Paul says, hearing the word of Christ, and then quotes from Deuteronomy. So the word of Christ is from Deuteronomy, first section of the, the Tanakh. The word of Christ is also from Isaiah 65, one through two, second section of the Tanakh. The word of Christ is from Psalm 19.4, the third and final section of the Tanakh. So you see the point. Here, Paul is quoting from each section of the Hebrew Bible, showing us the, the boundaries within which he is working. Again, in Romans 15, we have a similar thing. Paul says, as it is written, this formula phrase introducing quotes from the, the scriptures, quotes from Deuteronomy, 2 Samuel, Isaiah, then the Psalms. Similar thing going on in Hebrews where he says, that is God says, then there's quotes from Deuteronomy, 2 Samuel, Psalms, um, several places in the Psalms. Again, all three parts of the Hebrew Bible. Moving on to early Jewish witnesses to the Hebrew Bible, I'm going to kind of blitz through this. Um, I don't know exactly how I do this. If you are listening to this online and you want the notes that I'm handing out, you can contact me at church or shoot me an email um, or just find me around and I'll, I'll get you the, the notes that have more information surrounding these topics I'm going to be going through. Um, but just to give you an overview and mention all these other witnesses to the Hebrew Bible, here are some Jewish witnesses, starting with the book of Ecclesiasticus in the Apocrypha, which we will talk about next week. There's a quote that says, Many great things have been given to us through the law, the prophets, and the others that follow them. 
the others being the, uh, the Ketuvim, the third section of the Tanakh. So here, again, we have all three sections of the Hebrew Bible mentioned. Next, we have Philo, a Jewish scholar in Alexandria, Egypt, who wrote from about 25 B.C. to 45 A.D. He, in his writing, mentions the law and the words spoken by God through the prophets and psalms and the other books that foster and perfect knowledge and piety. So here, all three sections of the Tanakh are mentioned. Next, we have Josephus, a Jewish scholar working for Rome, writing around 90 A.D., he listed a total of 22 books in the Hebrew Bible, which actually corresponded to the 24 uh, usually counted in the Hebrew Bible. He counted them a little differently. He combined um, two other books that we don't usually combine, um, but don't worry, they're the same, same books that we have in our Old Testament. So he lists out all of them. The same books that we have in our Old Testament are the same ones that Josephus listed out. He also claimed that the canon was closed. He claimed there was no more scripture being written. The, the boundaries were set. The lines were drawn. The canon has closed. Next, we have a rabbinic academy at um, Yabna and the coast of Israel that operated after the time of Christ, around 70 to 117 AD. The rabbis here agreed with the existing opinion concerning which books were God's word. They agreed with Josephus and these other people as to which books were in the Bible. Next, in the book of 4th Ezra, 1445, this isn't a book that's in your Bible. It's um, a book in the Pseudepigrapha, which we will talk about next week. Um, they are like the Apocrypha, Apocrypha, but no one considers them to be scripture. It was written about 100 AD. It refers to the 24 books meant to be read by all. The 24 books being the ones that we have in the Hebrew Bible that we've been talking about. Next, we have the Babylonian Talmud. The Talmud is Jewish commentary on the uh, scriptures and the oral law. Um, it was compiled from 70 AD to 200 AD, and in it, it lists out the 24 books of the Hebrew Bible, the same ones that we now use today. Moving on, I'm going to be talking about the Masoretic text. Uh, you may recall earlier, towards the beginning of the presentation, I mentioned the Masoretes. They were these scribes who added vowels to the Hebrew text. Well, they produced what we refer to now as the Masoretic text. These scribes copied manuscripts of the Hebrew Bible from 500 to 1000 AD, they were extremely, extremely meticulous in their copying. Um, it's, it's insane how careful they were. They counted everything you could count. They counted how many letters were in the, the book they were copying. They counted how many words and then would go back through and count. And if they messed up, they would just burn the manuscript and restart. They had all these rituals that they would do before they, they copied. They would wash themselves over and over and pray over and over before they began copying because of high, uh, the, the high value that they had on Scripture. They were so meticulous in their copying that a manuscript from 1000 A.D. is essentially just as good as one from 500 A.D. They, they were so precise in their copying that we can, we can pretty much be assured that a copy from 1000 AD is exactly the same as one from 500 years earlier. 
The earliest complete manuscript of the Masoretic text, which we have, is called the Leningrad Codex. It's from 1008 AD. There was another codex, which was older, uh, called the Aleppo Codex. It was about 100 years older, but it was damaged, and now it contains only about two-thirds of the Hebrew Bible. Um, but when we compare them, we see that they're almost exactly the same because of how meticulous the scribes were. These were the same people who, like I mentioned, added the vowel pointing. They also added textual notes called Masora, um, which means tradition. And so if there was a place in the text that they were copying where they were copying from something that had an error in it and they could tell, no, this isn't right, they, they wrote a wrong letter, they wouldn't change it. They would copy it even though it had an error and they would add then in the margins a note saying, hey, this is wrong, um, know this when you get to get to the reading but they had they had such a high view of scripture they wouldn't change anything um, so they added stuff in the margins the reason this is so important is because of its stability it has become the base edition of almost all modern hebrew bibles when we translate the bible into english now this is what's used for the old testament so um, in a modern hebrew bible they just have copied typed out the leningrad codex and then they have footnotes noting textual variants. Um, but it's, it's super stable, super reliable for, for almost everything, and uh, this is what we translate from. Moving on to Christian witnesses to the Hebrew Bible, there's a man by the name of Origen who lived around 240 AD, and he undertook this massive project. He set out to copy the Hebrew Bible six times. He, he had a six-column Bible and it's called the hexapla, um, hex meaning six. So uh, maybe you've seen before um, Bibles where they have the NIV translation on one side and then the, uh, the NLT on the other side, and so you can compare them as you're reading. Well, he did this six times. He had the Hebrew text, and then he had a Greek transliteration. So a transliteration is when you take... Um, a word in another language, and then write in the equivalents, the equivalent sounds in the, your language. So uh, the Hebrew word Elohim, which is God, if we were to write that in English, we would write out E-L-O-H-I-M uh, to, to stand for the Hebrew letters that make this sound, Elohim. Um, so that's a transliteration. So he transliterated the Hebrew into Greek for the entire Hebrew Bible. Then he also had the translations of these three Jewish scholars I mentioned earlier, Aquila, Symmachus, and Theodotion. And then he had the Septuagint. He listed out the, the books of the Hebrew Bible which correspond to our 39 books. So the same books that Origen listed out are the same ones we use today. And you would imagine that for, for someone who, before computers, before the printing press, if you are going to write out by hand the entire Hebrew Bible, six times, you'd want to be pretty confident that you're writing down the right books and that you're writing down the right words. And so Origen was very confident of this, and this gives us confidence today because we look back and we see, oh, he had all the same books, and he has a witness to the text of the Hebrew Bible, all these translations, and we can see how they were similar, how they were different, um, and it's just overwhelmingly similar to what we have. Next, there is a guy by the name of uh, Jerome 
fourth century AD, he was commissioned by the Roman Catholic Church to translate the Bible from Greek and Hebrew, so both the, the Old and New Testament, into the common Latin of the day. This translation is called the Vulgate. Many of you have probably heard of it. Um, this became the official Bible of the Roman Catholic Church and was used for, for centuries by them. So Jerome accepted the 22 books of the Hebrew Bible, which corresponds to R39, the same exact books. He believed these were scripture, and he translated them. When they, the Roman Catholic Church, when they, they tried to pressure him into translating these other books, uh, which we're going to talk about next week, the Apocrypha, but he refused. He said, these are not scripture. I'm not even going to translate them. Um, and so this is huge because he shows us which books belonged in the Bible and then is also a staunch witness to the fact that, that these other books should not be in the Bible. So we'll talk about him ne next week when we answer the question whether or not these books called the Apocrypha should be in our Bibles. So lastly, I want to mention uh, chapter and verse divisions. So when we read our Bibles today, obviously we have a system of chapters and verses, and this is really helpful for finding uh, verses. You can say, hey, turn to uh, Isaiah 62, and you can get there quickly because you just flip through and find the chapter and find the verse, and you're there. Um, these were not in the original autographs or the original manuscripts. God did not write the chapter and verse numbers. They were added much later. The chapter divisions were added by a guy named Stephen Langton. He was the Archbishop of Canterbury, and he lived um, during the 12th century. So 12th century is when they were, these were added, and it's important to remember that because a lot of times, um, for as helpful as these are, they can also be a distraction because we'll, we'll, you know, we'll read one chapter and say, okay, then we're, we're done. We have, a, we have a natural break point. When really the author might not have intended there to be a break at that specific spot. Um, think about today, if, if I were to send you a letter, you wouldn't read one paragraph and then the next day, read another paragraph. And the next day, read another paragraph. You would sit down and read the entire thing. And so in the New Testament, Paul has a bunch of letters. There's other authors who have letters. Why would we read those any differently? Um, and, and there's some big books in the Bible, like the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, the book of Psalms, that you're not going to sit down and, and read in one sitting for the most part. Um, I would recommend you do it. I think it's awesome, and it um, helps you understand and see the big picture, but a lot of you won't do that. Um, but when you, when you do that, you're, you're going to not be interrupted by these breaks that are a lot of times artificial. Um, Stephen Langton did a good job for the most part, but there's other points where he blew it. For example, the first chapter division of the entire Bible, Genesis 2, there's six days of creation in Genesis 1, and then he inserts a chapter division, and there's a few verses of the seventh day. And it's, it's like, why didn't you put those in the first chapter and then have a break? Um, so I think he blew it there. Um, so just remember when you're reading and, and if you come to something and you're like, wow, that seems like it's in an odd place, you have my permission to question Steve and to blame uh, Mr. Stephen Langton. Moving on to the verse divisions, they were added even later in the sec 16th century by, a guy, uh, by two brothers, actually, Robert and Henry Estienne. They were French. Okay. 
So, I've given you a ton of information over the last hour, hour and a half. Um, it's probably been a lot to take in. What is the bottom line? So, we have a vast amount of witnesses to two things that I, I want to recap. Which books belong in the Hebrew Bible? We can see from all these different people, whether they're numbered 22 or 24 or 39, all of these witnesses agree on which books belong in the canon of the Hebrew Bible. Jesus is referring to the Tanakh. Paul refers to the Tanakh. We have Jewish scholars. We have Christians. We have um, all these manuscripts which seem to show this three-part structure which gives a different, definite boundary to the canon of the Old Testament. And then two, the wording of the text of the Hebrew Bible. We have all these different textual witnesses, such as the Masoretic text, the Samaritan Pentateuch, the Targums, the Talmudic Commentary, Origin, the Dead Sea Scrolls, the Septuagint, and we can compare them and then be extremely confident in the wording of the text of the Hebrew Bible. There's, there's honestly not any crazy differences between all of these, these sources. There's some um, differences in spelling and, and wording, or maybe they doubled a word or forgot a word or left out a letter, um, but there's nothing that changes any fundamental doctrine that the Hebrew Bible teaches. And so these, so these sources show us that, that we can be confident in the text of the Hebrew Bible that we have today. Now, looking back at all these witnesses, we have Jews, we have Gentile Christians, we have people from before the time of Christ and after the time of Christ. If you're throwing a party, party on Friday night, you wouldn't want to invite Philo and Origen. They wouldn't get along. They'd, they'd disagree on whether Jesus was the Messiah or the very nature of God as triune um, or not. Yet, they agree on which books belong in the Hebrew Bible and the wording of the text of the Hebrew Bible. And this is, this is spectacular. This is um, so fascinating, but encouraging as well, because we have people from all different backgrounds who agree on these things. And this should give us so much confidence. So to recap, hopefully after this lesson, you all have a better idea of what... Um, the process of formation of the Hebrew Bible looks like, or what we refer to as the Old Testament. How did we get that? Two, how do we know we have the right books in our Old Testament? Hopefully you can all um, answer with a resounding yes, we have the right books in our Old Testament because we see from all these witnesses that they agree on which books belonged in the canon. And lastly, why we can trust that we have a reliable text for the Old Testament we have all these witnesses that, that back up this evidence. We can say, yes, I believe with confidence that, um, that the text we are using is accurate. Furthermore, I, I hope that all this information has increased your sense of awe and wonder toward the God who has revealed himself to us in his word and has preserved it for us throughout hundreds of years sovereignly, um, keeping it for all people who would be Christians throughout centuries of church history. So,
That is all I have for you this week. I hope you have learned something. I hope you've been encouraged and you can walk away with at least confidence that you have the right books in your Old Testament. You'll have to come back next week to see if you have the right books in your New Testament. Um, next week, we will, we will be talking about the Apocrypha, those books which are disputed as to whether or not they are Scripture, and then we'll be talking about the formation of the Greek Bible, which is similar in some ways to the formation of the Hebrew Bible, but is really different in a lot of other ways. So uh, we'll be discussing that. Um, I hope to see a lot of you next week, and if not, we'll be recording. Hopefully, we record it all in one take next week. Uh, make things a little easier. But that is all I have for you uh, tonight. God bless.